I'm, I'm new here, and I, I lived in the suburbs, and this is, this is different, right? You know, when I uh, go past someone who uh, seems to just lie on the sidewalk, I'm sort of tempted, and I, I tend to <laughs> check if they're still alive. A month or so ago, uh, just walking down um, Second Street, there was uh, someone uh, lying, essentially uh, just barely wheezing. And sometimes with um, opiates especially, so one of the key, I think, uh, one of the most abused drugs in Seattle right now is uh, fentanyl, which is a synthetic um, opioid. One of the uh, side effects of opiates is um, depression of breathing, and that's often uh, one way people die, an overdose. And sometimes it's, you really have to wait a while to see a breath. You know, if uh, a few breaths a minute, uh, right, it's usually okay, but then this person just was barely wheezing and clearly had a had some other comorbidity, maybe asthma or something like that. And and I have to say I was very impressed by the uh, uh, emergency services. So I called in and they told me what to do. But um, and um, and and they were there within three minutes. Uh, then the naloxone came out. <laughs> the whole thing was was over in like maybe ten. That was Karel Svoboda sharing the story of the time he came across someone overdosing in downtown Seattle. He likely saved their life by calling an ambulance and performing CPR. Karel moved to Seattle not that long ago from the suburbs of Virginia. He's the director of the newly launched Allen Institute for Neural Dynamics. Karel studies a lot of different aspects of the brain. One of these is the brain circuits that are involved in reward. These circuits also underlie drug addiction. Having come to Seattle and living downtown, I'm also um, getting in, uh, increasingly interested in the in the problem of addiction because Seattle is, uh, as you know, is a, a hotspot in the sense that um, it uh, it has a very visible addiction problem. And there's this uh, scorch of addiction and uh, deaths of uh, desperation, right, that is uh, plaguing this country. And this is a disorder of reward-dependent behaviors. Habits gone wrong in the most extreme ways. I'm Rob Piercy. I'm Rachel Tampa. And this is Lab Notes, a podcast from the Allen Institute. On today's episode, we're talking with Karel about the basic biology of reward. In some sense, it seems like at the most base level, without reward, there would be no life. There would be no life, yeah. We're also talking with two other scientists, Hongkui Zhang, executive vice president and director of the Allen Institute for Brain Science, and Greg Scherer, a professor at the University of North Carolina. Hongkui and Greg are working together to better understand the neuroscience of opioid addiction. Their ultimate goal is to design less addictive pain medications and better treatment for addiction. Can you just say what do we mean when we say reward? I mean, it's not just like a trophy, right? Like it's bigger than that. Yeah, so reward is a, is a loaded term, right? So it's, um, as we learn, uh, much of what we learn, we think, uh, is driven by 
reward uh, by um, ultimate leaders. So there are, of course, strong evolutionary pressures, right, to learn from reward, to find mates for sex, uh, very importantly, you know, foods, food for, uh, uh, for, for, for survival and, and sort of kind of the basic needs. And this goes back uh, hundreds of millions of years in, in evolution. We really need extra motivation to just not die, right? Yeah, we need some other reason to eat and sleep and stay warm other than the fact that we have to do these things to survive. But reward does other stuff for us, too. Over evolution, kind of the, the, what the brain, uh, how the brain kind of, if I may so say so, thinks, thinks about reward is much broader, right? One of the key aspects of mammalian nervous systems is uh, information seeking, sort of at the, uh, um, at the very other end of rewarding uh, things. So, for example, we are uh, curious creatures, but so are mice and primates and um, all kinds of uh, mammals. We find information very rewarding. So, Rob, you know that while I was working on this podcast, I have also been trying to learn audio editing software for the first time. I should explain to our listeners that Rob is our audio guru, and I'm a complete noob at audio stuff. Is that my official title? Audio guru? (laughs) Yep. All right, that works. And I just kept thinking about this moment in our interview with Karel. Like, isn't my brain supposed to enjoy learning this new, complicated software? I can tell you that it did not. Well, it took me 15 years to learn it, so you got a little bit more time in front of you. It's also interesting to think about the fact that learning is rewarding to us. At a basic level, learning is triggering the same kind of feel-good chemicals as eating or sex. We're learning about learning right now during this conversation. So what's actually happening in our brains if we're finding this rewarding? Well, so that's many things, of course, happen, but the, the uh, and, and lots of these processes we don't understand, I should say. But it, it reward processing is one of these things that has actually received a lot of attention in neuroscience. So I would say for reward processing, the glass is about 10% full in neuroscience, which is a lot. Uh, and, you know, usually we're sort of at the 0.01% full in, in many other kinds of um, aspects of brain function. But so uh, one of the key things that happens, there's a there's a um, there's sort of this classic um, pleasure circuit, pleasure loop that involves um, at its core dopaminergic neurons. And dopaminergic neurons are some of the first neurons that were identified Let's talk dopamine for a second. It is really the classic feel-good chemical. Dopamine is a chemical messenger in the brain that's the driver for this reward circuitry that Karel is talking about. It does a lot more than just to make us happy. The neurons that produce dopamine, the dopaminergic neurons Karel mentioned, are key for so many behaviors that we take for granted. These neurons have uh, fibers, the axons, that go all over the brain and they kind of control the state and uh, learning in the brain and uh, our moods. And uh, they kind of set the tone um, of the brain. And, and, and so what these dopamine neurons do is they uh, secrete dopamine, that dopamine binds then, or the small molecule binds to other neurons, changes the properties of these neurons and, and information processing in the rest of the brain. Very importantly for dopamine, it's 
also a teaching signal. And this is very important. Um, it's uh, uh, when uh, something good happens, um, that was the result of certain pattern of activity, uh, neural activity, because if you move a limb, for example, to grab uh, your coffee, that's the result of neural activity. Then you get the sip of coffee, the dopamine kicks in from these dopamine neurons, and it actually strengthens the connections of the neurons that produce that action. So that action is reinforced, not just at the behavioral level here, but now at the level of neural circuits that produce that action. All I can say is, thank goodness my brain is so good at reaching for my coffee cup. Right? If dopamine helps strengthen rewarding connections, my coffee drinking circuit has got to be just super beefed up by now. All right, getting back to the dopaminergic neurons. These uh, neurons are key for processing uh, all of the rewards that we discussed from the very basic ones to the highly cognitive ones. And, and so uh, one thing that, we, uh, that, that, that happens when we receive a reward that these neurons are active. These neurons are also active when we anticipate a reward. So there's sort of a learning component uh, to this system. It drives learning and it's also plastic during learning. So uh, you know, stimuli that predict reward, that predict sex or food or, uh, you know, an interesting movie already uh, uh, activate this reward system. How the brain builds uh, complex models of the world using this re reward system, how it allows you to make plans uh, about where to go and, 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 and how to, in very complex dynamic environment, find your way towards uh, rewards. So it's, it's kind of like your brain is mapping the world with a like pleasure topography. That's, a, that's great, yeah, yeah, I love it, yeah. So we need reward and dopamine for pretty much everything that keeps us alive. But for some people, this very natural kind of reward seeking can go wrong. We know that addiction rewires the brain, but those struggling with addiction might have also had different brain wiring all along. Over. Um, activation of dopamine produces the euphoria uh, that we um, experience with drugs of abuse. And these uh, individuals that are prone to addiction actually have downregulated expression of these dopamine receptors. So their, their dopamine system is kind of underdeveloped in some sense. So they need, they need more, right, uh, of that, that stimulation. And then that stimulation itself has similar kinds of effects further uh, ultimately uh, depresses the their, their kind of compensatory effects that uh, decrease uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the strength of the dopamine system. Okay, so dopamine is key for both reward and addiction. But as we know, the brain is really, really complicated. The cause of addiction can't possibly be as simple as just having the wrong amount of dopamine. Of course not. And now we get into the territory Karel was talking about, where the glass of knowledge is more like 0.01% full. The neurons that produce dopamine are involved in addiction, but these neurons are involved in so many things. Aiming addiction treatments at dopamine or dopaminergic neurons might not get us very far because it would have such widespread effects in the brain. Hong Kui Zhang, who leads the Allen Institute for Brain Science, is working on some of these unknowns. I think it's uh, very important to study how the opioids activate the reward system and, and basically, you know, hijacking the normal reward system, right? Uh, make it, desensitize it, um, um, you know, make the patients 
crave for the drugs and, you know, wanting to have more and more and, you know, in the end becoming compulsive drug seekers, we want to understand that process, you know, how those drugs can hijack the reward system so that, yeah, we can find ways to actually blunt that effect while not preventing the normal natural uh, reward uh, process. Hong Kui is an expert in categorizing the healthy brain into different types of cells. She's now collaborating with Greg Scher at the University of North Carolina to find out what happens to these brain cells in opioid addiction. Opioids are a class of drugs that were originally developed as painkillers, like a lot of other drugs of abuse. Morphine, fentanyl, of course, oxycodone. These are the drugs you hear so much about in the headlines about America's addiction crisis. Unfortunately, in some cases, some of these drugs are necessary because we just don't have better pain medication. I asked Greg, a neuroscientist who's an expert in opioids, to explain a bit more about their history and their current use. Uh, Opioids originally uh, were used because they were extracted from a plant, the uh, opium poppy, Papaver somniferum. And so uh, it's a beautiful plant that makes beautiful flowers, but at a different uh, stage of the plant growth, uh, during its cycle, it produces, uh, it makes a, a capsule that at immature state produces a latex. And so um, humans notice that if you uh, lacerate these capsules, you can collect the latex. And if you let it dry, you obtain opium. So opium is very uh, easy to produce. And so this uh, substance, opium, contains uh, alkaloids that uh, include morphine, for example. That's the most um, active ingredient, I would say, in, 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 the, in opium. And so because it's been uh, easy to, to uh, obtain, humans have used it uh, since a very long time for um, relief of pain, but also because they noticed it, it created an euphoric state, pleasure, That pleasurable state is just the beginning of the addiction cycle. These are the rewarding properties of uh, opioids that uh, drive the addiction disease. This is, you know, you have two aspects in addiction. You have um, the the first um, pleasure that you get when you uh, uh, experience the effect of opioids. And then you have habit forming, you become dependent. And so that's the, the first phase. Is the, the addiction is sort of dri- driven by the, the positive reinforcement, so the, the pleasurable properties of opioids. And then you have a switch. As individuals become dependent, then you have the negative aspects of addiction that kicks in that is called negative reinforcement. And so if individuals stop taking the drug, now they, exp- they experience the opposite. It's a very strong aversive state. They don't feel well at all. And because of that, they need to take uh, opioids again. And so it's this vicious cycle that that is um, causing the problem of addiction. In the 1970s, scientists discovered the molecules in the brain that let opioids do their work. These molecules, called opioid receptors, are like little locked doors on neurons. Opioids are the keys that unlock these doors. One of these receptors, called the mu-opioid receptor, is especially important. A number of researchers generated mice that uh, lack this opioid receptor, the mu-opioid receptor. This is called a a knockout mouse. And so simply by removing this single gene from the mouse genome, uh, morphine essentially has no effect. It's no longer analgesic, it's no longer addictive, it doesn't cause respiratory depression anymore. 
These experiments showed that the mu opioid receptor is responsible for everything the drugs do. Their analgesic or pain-killing effects, the euphoria and their effects on breathing. That respiratory depression Greg mentioned, that's what actually kills many people who overdose on fentanyl or other opioids. The drugs affect the brain's control of the lungs as well as the muscles themselves, and people just stop breathing. Separating out these functions is really critical for managing and treating addiction. The um, brain circuits that are involved in pain control, in respiration, for example, and uh, in the reward, uh, the reward system are all very distinct. The problem here is that uh, the opioid receptor, especially the mu opioid receptor itself, is expressed in all these different systems. But if we are able to separate the effect of opioids on those different centers, then we can try to selectively activate, for example, the pain, the pain suppression center or suppress the pain center uh, to control pain while not, um, not affecting the reward system at the same time or the respiratory system at the same time. So it is actually critical for us to dissect, to understand the difference among the different circuits so that we can develop approaches to differentially target them. Even though opioids are so addictive, why do we still need them? Like, why do doctors still prescribe morphine and other opioids to their patients? That's a great question. And this is why my lab works not only on opioids, but also on pain, because I I am convinced that the two problems are, are really combined in, in what are, in fact, not one opioid, one epidemic, the opioid epidemic, but there's another epidemic, which is the chronic pain uh, epidemic. About 20% of the general population at some point will experience chronic pain. And we just don't have that many um, drugs to relieve severe pain. And so, of course, medical doctors do know that opioids uh, can cause addiction, that some patients may be at risk to transition to addiction, but it's also not acceptable to let somebody be suffering from pain for months to years. And so uh, one of the problems with the opioid epidemic is that we do not have good alternative for management of severe pain. So we, by understanding how opioids relieve pain, we can also perhaps discover novel targets in the same cell that could relieve pain just as well as morphine, maybe more efficiently, but without acting on the reward of breathing circuits, for example. Even though scientists know a lot about opioid receptors, they don't know all the types of neurons that carry these receptors. They also don't know which types of neurons are important for these three different branches of opioid biology, painkilling, pleasure and addiction, and respiratory depression. This is the problem Greg and Hankwe are trying to solve. We now have an opportunity to uh, crack the the cell type code of the opioid effect using uh, the the cell type taxonomy uh, on a brain-wide scale that we um, have generated. Um, We want to do an unbiased screen of um, how the drugs affects the different cell types in the brain and identify potentially new target cell types for, uh, for discovery, for um, investigation, and for intervention. Our hope is that 
that through characterization of gene expression changes in the cell types, we can identify um, and uh, you know in, in first in animals, but in the future um, in human uh, brain tissues as well, to identify cell types um, that are affected uh, during specific phases of the drug use. Um, and we hope that you know by identifying in a systematic way, the cell types across the brain that are affected, then we can begin to understand better how the drug affects the brain in, you know, at a whole brain level. Right now, this work is happening in mice, but the researchers plan to study the same cell types in human brains very soon. Hongkui has worked in basic foundational research for most of her career. It's been really rewarding for her to branch into a project that could directly impact a human health crisis. Yeah, we very much want to apply our basic research, foundational research, into um, benefit to uh, people's you know, everyday life. Um, drug addiction, in particular opioid um, addiction, is a prevalent societal problem that we hope to be to help to contribute to solutions to. She's also just plain excited about the science. The brain is very plastic. The brain learns new things, can change, can adapt to new conditions. Um, drug addiction is an extreme form of brain adaptation, uh, plasticity or maladaption. So I'm very curious to see how it happens and also in what ways we can reverse that, um, you know, really strong, persistent maladaption. Um, I think it's, a, in some way, it's a, a amazing manifestation of how brain can be um, sculpted um, and how nature, you know, how nature um, created those compounds uh, chemicals that can affect brain in such a powerful way. And um, it is, um, I think it's, of course, it's extremely important for understanding and improving, improving human health. But by itself, studying drug addiction is also a very powerful way of understanding the brain itself. Does that in kind of incredible plasticity of the brain, does that kind of give some extra hope that the problem can be reversed? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we should, we will definitely be able to find a way to reverse that process. Given the brain's capacity of uh, plasticity, you know, changing in the bad direction, but also, you know, changing back uh, in, in a good direction. I'm Rachel Tampa. I'm Rob Piercy. For more Lab Notes episodes and other science news, visit our website at alleninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.